Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Business Finance Friday webinar. With me today, I've got Debbie Neto-Yonker, who is currently with us from Melbourne in Australia. Debbie is an award-winning financial planner with uh, clients in Australia and South Africa. And then we've got Andrew Golding. Dr. Andrew Golding is the head of the Pam Golding Properties Organization, and he's obviously an expert on South African property, but he also has this wealth of knowledge on the global property market. So welcome, Debbie and Andrew. Thanks, Thank Becky. Now, before we get started with the questions, I couldn't help noticing that both of you actually have a medical background. Uh, Debbie started her career in financial planning after first working as a nurse, and then Andrew is a, a medical doctor. So, Debbie, could you just tell us briefly, how did you make the move from nursing to financial planning? Oh, it was so long ago, I can't really remember completely, but it was more bumping into a uh, a widow of a patient and I was friendly with their children at University of Cape Town that where they'd studied and uh, I asked her casually I said how are you doing and she said oh it's been a bit tough at work I said oh um, sorry to hear that she said no well uh, Gordon was his name I remember and uh, he had lots of um, policies and investments but he didn't actually have enough life insurance so I've had to go back to work so the boys can finish university and I thought oh and then I looked at my financial planner, Garrick Berg, who I still see today. And, uh, I, you know, he actually helped us a lot just with understanding what the future held and how to plan for that. So I looked forward to being able to give families transparency around where they're at and today and where they want to be and um, have a plan so that if they retire or die or are disabled, at least I can give them clarity on where they're at. And that empowers them to help themselves. Whereas nursing or medicine, they walk in and, you know, you've got to fix the problem. Whereas financial planning is probably a bit more preventative if it's done properly and, and self-guided uh, where there's coaching. Jackie? Maybe I think we're going to be interviewing each other. Yeah, hello, um, Andrew. <laughs> Do you want to key into that uh, answer, medicine to property? <laughs> yes. Um, Andrew, I'm here. I just can't control the presentation. I'll try to get it from Jax now. Do you want to introduce yourself as well as Jax? Probably as for you as well, the shift from the doctoral background into property. Yeah, so um, qualified as a medical doctor uh, in, uh, in the early 90s and was in general practice for uh, about six years. Uh, and then at that stage, uh, in our family business, uh, there was an opportunity to uh, potentially get a professional business manager in uh, or keep uh, the family succession plan going uh, as, as my mom was sort of winding down uh, her career. And what seems like uh, another lifetime ago, almost 25 years ago, uh, made the switch uh, out of medicine into, into the real estate world. Uh, and began the, the learning curve of a completely different discipline. Uh, although I think there are a number of similarities between general practice and, and property, um, particularly around listening skills and, uh, and a number of other components. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've obviously had uh, a very happy time in, in both careers, uh, but, um, but now for the last 20 odd years, 25 years, uh, immersed myself in in predominantly residential property. Excellent, thanks, Andrew. Jackie's back now. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm back. Um, 
So, Andrew, just br briefly before we start taking the questions, what is your view on the South African property market currently? I mean, it's obviously one of the most important assets for many people. Can we still be confident that this is an asset that's going to be a store of value in the medium term? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, the, the word unprecedented is extremely cliched at the moment, and but I, but I think it really is unprecedented times. Um, and certainly from a business management perspective, we are literally managing our business month by month. Uh, we we entered lockdown. We weren't sure exactly what that was going to entail. It required a, a range of dramatic measures to try and predict that process. We came out of lockdown um, expecting the market to potentially be somewhere around 50% of normal. And it's come out of the gates extremely strongly. Uh, June was pretty strong and July has been record-breaking in terms of number of transactions throughout uh, the country. I think that that is more indicative of significant pent-up demand. We effectively had two months where there were no transactions. So in terms of the South African um, residential space, that's about 24,000 transactions that didn't take place, which would normally have taken place. So I think it's natural to have expected the market to have had some pent-up demand and to have come out as strongly as it did. But there's no question that that is potentially a false dawn um, and one where uh, I think in the next few months, we're going to see the real effect of COVID uh, on the South African market and the extent to which that's going to impact both volume and pricing. Um, I also think that from a South African perspective, it's very difficult, difficult to generalize. We are in a, we always have re really been in a market that is very hyper-local, that is very specific about specific areas, specific categories of property. And so I think it's, it's dangerous to generalize and say the property market is either good or bad. One has to actually dig into the detail and assess what's happening um, in each metro and within each metro, within each suburb. And even within a suburb, there are different ranges. So I think generally speaking, the, there are a number of um, parts of the, of the market which had already priced, repriced themselves before COVID. Um, and it seems like that that repricing has continued uh, post COVID. But there are instances where properties are achieving above asking price. And there are many instances where properties are currently achieving well below asking price. So it's really a difficult market to read. Um, and one has to kind of do one's homework on the specifics of what's happening in that particular property in that particular area. Right. Thank you. And Debbie, as Andrew mentioned, these are really unprecedented times. How are the financial How's the financial situation changing for your clients in your practice? Are you seeing that people are investing more offshore? Are more people in trouble? Could you just briefly sketch out what, what the changes have been? Sure. Look, unprecedented times. If ever there was a time to have a proper documented financial plan and understand why you hold the investments, now has been that time. Uh, we do know that if you look at your investments every day, you're going to see them fall about 50% of the time. That was according to an article that James Kirby wrote. So if you check annually, because the market tends to go up most years, the chance of seeing a negative return diminishes. So, you know, if you're not sleeping at night, you either haven't um, internalized your financial plan or you haven't got a financial planner or somebody that can counsel you into um, just a sense of, um, certainty in a very uncertain world. So um, we seeing haven't seen many people saying they want to do anything. Um, I have met folks socially who said, oh, they wish they'd, uh, they were cycling with my husband and they were really upset because they sold everything in March. Well, he's a chartered accountant. He looks after a very big uh, portfolio in Australia. He's the accountant. 
And uh, somebody turned around and said, oh, you should have used Debbie. And, and not because I know which fund to choose, but because actually when you have a scenario, you have somebody else as a filter to almost help protect you from making decisions that alone in your study or library, I wish mine looked as nice as yours does, um, Andrew, but uh, you know that you can actually just bounce ideas off and say, well, so he sold in March. And of course the market has recovered to a certain extent, depending where you're looking at. Um, so I think it's a time not to panic. We've all got lots of time. Let's use that time to work out what have we got? What do we owe? And my husband installed sensors, so I do this when I and the lights come on. But that stopped the neck that stopped the neck ache that comes from having computer work a lot of the time. So, you know, really if, if we can just encourage everybody to take stock um, before you make a decision based on panic. Fear, as we know, is a great driver of emotional decisions around investing. Um, and I'm sure Andrew sees that as well in, in panic selling or panic buying. We don't really probably have the panic buying, but sometimes decisions around buying a property are because of a move or a death or something has happened that's triggered this change. It's not always something that they've had lots of time to think about. Thanks, Debbie. So the first question we've got here is for Andrew and it's from Julian. And uh, uh, Julian says, regarding UK property, speci specifically London, what return could you expect on rentals? What interest rate would you get? Uh, and expect to pay on a mortgage as a non-resident on a buy-to-let? So quite a complicated question. Perhaps we could break it down. Is London a good place to invest for South Africans right now? Yeah, so, so historically London has probably been one of the best performers uh, for South Africans uh, of, of any market uh, over a, a wide range of years. And that's a function of both the performance of the London property market as well as obviously the Rand Hedge uh, component. Uh, in, in the current environment, the London market has softened quite considerably over the last year or so, but uh, post uh, the UK lockdown environment, the, the London market has again, probably as a consequence of pent-up demand amongst other things, really accelerated um, extremely well. So the, the low interest rate environment that the UK currently has, uh, together with the way that the property market is appreciating there, makes it again attractive. And then if you add uh, the, the RAND hedge component to it, then that provides an additional uh, potential bonus around a total um, investment return. Those investment returns, you know, are again, very property specific and one has to be, I think, uh, mindful of trying to lock in your investment profit when you go in rather than when you go out. Uh, so rather when you buy than when you sell. Uh, and, and therefore, the, the due diligence and the homework that you need to do around the specifics of a particular area or a particular property investment in the UK require a lot of homework and a lot of expert consultation in order to make the most informed uh, decision possible. So it's very hard to try and peg a return, but I would say that if you are aiming at a generalized return of around 10% all in, then that should be imminently achievable. Obviously, one can speculate and, and take riskier views on things which get you much higher than that, but I would say that that's kind of a, a benchmark to aim for. And how easy is it to get a mortgage on a buy-to-let offshore? Do you or do you, realis yeah. do you realistically need to be a cash buyer? No, no. Uh, um, generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, in terms of most offshore destinations, um, local lenders will lend up to around 50%, and that's generally what we'll recommend as being a prudent number uh, to to aim for. So 50% in cash and 50% geared 
off the back of the individual property itself and most local lenders, even in the current environment, will lend you that. And generally speaking, you're going to be paying a premium as an offshore investor uh, of around an additional 2% uh, above the local lending rate um, as, a, as an offshore investor with no uh, local residents. Thank you. And uh, Archie has a question, and I think this looks like one for Debbie. Uh, he says, can you please supply the name of an offshore euro money markets fund that could be used for holding an offshore investment? And, in, and then he also wants to know about golden visas. But let's start with the money market funds. How do you go about choosing a good euro money market fund, Debbie? Okay. Um... You know, how long is a piece of string? Uh, we, would, we wouldn't mention any names. It's not our style at all. Um, certainly in terms of uh, your, your banks, uh, you have a lot of access to banks and they will give you term deposits and areas to hold money. But to actually for me to stand on this sort of profile and say use fund A, B or C would be a contrarian to everything that I've stood for. Uh, and again, because, you know, depending on where the needs are, you know, not every money fund or money market is guaranteed, which is something that people probably aren't aware of. So, you know, the the risks of, of going into a specific fund, I would suggest that strongly they seek advice um, and that way they can protect themselves around capital loss and downside. Thanks. And just in broad brushstrokes, if you did want to buy a property, how, how would you choose a place to park your cash? Would you go for a bank account then or what would the process be? Most funds that are available even um, may have liquidity risks and also may have capital risks. So, you know, we generally would say if you're looking to do something in the next two to three years, cash is going to be your term deposits or a fix, um, uh, just money in the bank would be the best uh, way to go. I understand interest rates are low, but remember fear and greed are drivers and we'd rather protect you from greed of and then be loss averse. So unfortunately, there's no um, quick fix to that answer. But you know, if you're planning to do something in the next two to three years, I would go into a, a fixed deposit or a term deposit with a bank. Thank you. And Andrew, what are you seeing when people are buying property offshore? Do you give them any guidance on how to, to make that move with their cash, maybe a cash deposit? Where, where would you be suggesting people put their money? Yeah, so we, we look to essentially advise people on the property purchase themselves and then look to engage with uh, advisors around the rest of the structuring, whether that's legal structuring or financial structuring. So we try and focus on giving them the right advice on the property specific implications and then look to try and um, bring in um, particular advisors who often need to be uh, involved in terms of planning, tax planning, structuring and all of the other very important facets um, when one is thinking about purchasing offshore. Thank you. And here's a question from Chris for Debbie. He says, I'm planning to move to Australia in 2023. Any advice on which currency I should hold my money or assets in ahead of this move? I currently have 50-50 between the pound and the US dollar. Well, you know, 2023 is around the corner. The Australian dollar did lose over 20% against the US dollar, which is something that South Africans often are unaware of over the last two to three years. So, you know, my partner Ian Beer would talk about asset liability matching. Yeah, you know, how certain are you you're going to be moving to Australia or to Switzerland for that matter? But if you know where you're going to go and you have some certainty, then perhaps uh, if I was him, I would be putting some money into the Australian currency 
but I don't know how certainly he's going to be in Australia. And remember, Australia is not a large portion of the global market. So, you know, again, I don't know if he's got any property anywhere else. I don't know if that's all he has is everything in those two currencies. Uh, it's very difficult to give general advice to anybody without understanding who they are. But, um, you know, certainly if he was living in South Africa, he should have some money in South Africa and some money overseas. Um, but uh, if he's, I don't know where he's living at the moment either, Jax, but um, I would certainly say if he's definitely going to be going to Australia, it would make sense to start purchasing some currency, but then the Australian dollar may weaken further against the US dollar. So there's no guarantees here. Um, and, and so I think in broad brushstrokes, I think he's South African. I think he's in South Africa. Okay, but he's got half his money off. He's got all his money offshore. That I don't 50%. understand. So 50% so offshore in pounds. And US dollars. So he's spread it out and a US bit. Dollars. Okay. Well, if he's definitely coming to Australia, it may make sense to have some, some money in Aussie dollars. Great. But then when he moves to Australia, there's no reason why he needs to suddenly liquidate all his assets and bring them all into Australia either. Most Australian investors would have 40 to 50% in global markets. That's also a very good point. Andrew, are you finding a lot of uh, people investing in South Africa in property right well, now? Well, uh, pre-lockdown, uh, the numbers were, I suppose, normal. And generally speaking, we, we find that about uh, half a percent of the total property market uh, has, foreign invest, has a foreign investment component. That's slightly higher in our, in our own business just in where we operate in the markets. Uh, but uh, through the lockdown and post-lockdown, those numbers have obviously dramatically fallen off. Uh, we have done some transactions uh, to foreigners who had seen a property that they were interested in before the lockdown, um, seen the prices drop, seen the rand depreciate, and felt that they were getting the bargain of a lifetime, and so have taken the plunge. But those were all essentially uh, pre-seen and and where they had been interested before that. Um, our expectation is that once international borders open up again, we'll start to see a normalisation of that foreign interest, and in fact potentially an increase, given the extent to which the property market might have repriced and the extent to which the RAND might have depreciated, and that makes uh, the purchasing opportunity potentially significantly cheaper for someone in a hard currency. Thank you. We've got a lot of questions coming through on the Johannesburg property market, Andrew, and here's one from Cecil. He says, long before COVID-19, the house market in Johannesburg was depressed. Prices appear less than what they were eight years ago. In today's market, how does one sell a house in Johannesburg and get fair value? Yeah, it's a it's a very difficult um, decision making process, I think, to go through because one's got to assess the current state of the market, uh, its its effect, um, uh, the COVID effect of that, and then the the broad based pricing trend, which, um, as he correctly points out, uh, was already in a repricing environment uh, pre COVID. Um, our, our view is that the Johannesburg property market um, had reached a floor pre-COVID, in other words, a correct pricing level um, and an appropriate one in, where there was a decent balance between buyer and seller. Uh, Post-COVID, um, taking uh, the, the, the pent-up demand environment um, out of the picture, I think one's just got to try and make an assessment of the individual uh, property, its area, um, and the comparative pricing uh, around that. The, the reality is that most sellers at the moment 
who are not uh, forced to sell are simply taking their properties off the market. Uh, and yep. so what one is seeing is a more authentic uh, property market, which doesn't have the outliers uh, of sellers who are speculatively putting their properties on the market. And so we're seeing uh, real sellers, motivated sellers, and genuinely um, interested buyers who in, in the current environment are having to um, negotiate their, their way around assessing the COVID environment in terms of that uh, particular buyer or those buyers' uh, opportunistic approach to the current market where the, the bias is definitely in the favor of the buyer at the moment, as against a seller who is needing to make a difficult decision around whether that property is going to appreciate over the next short while, presuming that they've got the property on the market for, say, the next six months or they're taking that view, uh, as opposed to the fact that the, the market might, in fact, deteriorate and uh, where there might be a glut of stock, particularly if uh, the amount of distress that is anticipated starts playing itself out in the property market with a number of sellers who are in fact in increasing distress and therefore going to have to take a, a reduced price as against what they would have been able to get pre-COVID. So I think it's a, you know, it's a very topsy-turvy and unpredictable and uncertain market that we find ourselves in and almost impossible to call. Um, so I think one's got to really just try and um, look at all of these circumstances and make a judgment call, albeit that it is a really difficult one at this time. Thank you. And here's a follow-up question, and perhaps you could both weigh in on this one. Paul wants to know, is the acquisition of student accommodation a good prospect? Now, we all know that students tend to not live uh, the way that more, more responsible adults are. Debbie, do you think student accommodation is a good investment prospect. Do you ever suggest property as an, an option for your clients? Um, as a financial planner, there's, I can't invest you rich. So, you know, holistically, if your portfolio of investable assets is so large that a small portion of your capital could be invested in what we would see that we would see as being buy to let. Uh, and then student accommodation is, is almost a, a, another micro um, asset class within that. So uh, you've got to be, when you start investing in those sort of properties, you, you almost land up becoming a business owner. And that increases the risk if you're not comfortable um, demanding rent repayments or you know, exiting people who can't pay. Personally, I never held um, residential property in my portfolio purely because I didn't have the heart or the stomach to evict a mom and child. So I, I think that's probably, you know, I'm just being authentic. Um, it has in the past um, delivered some benefit, some gains and fairly good gains to investors. But at the same time, with in the current scenario, I'm actually not too sure how that's going to play out for the for the short term, uh, maybe even the medium term. But Andrew would have a bigger uh, handle on the pulse there. I just know yes. that when you start trying to have a forced sale of property because you can't cope with the squatter and you can't cope with non-payment and you've got your levies coming up and your body corporate fees, um, that's you're in a very weak position when you get to that stage unless you've got surplus capital to pump in more. Uh, and that would be the that would be the, the negatives. Um, the positives they can they have in the past been returns, but it's a very subsector of an investment portfolio that I'm not really qualified. To, to advise on. Okay, Andrew, what do you think about student accommodation? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so 
I think, again, in the pre-COVID environment, and had we been having this interview then, I would have said to you that the student uh, accommodation market from a, from a buy-to-let perspective was uh, one of the most significant outperformers, positive outperformers in the South African market, uh, particularly if one looked at a town like Stellenbosch, um, the, the rental return and the capital growth uh, that those investors uh, were getting year after year was, was definitely one of the best. And that was a, applicable across almost all of the student um, areas, um, both metro and, and non-metro. Uh, I think now in the post-COVID environment and with the extent that, to the extent that the universities seem to be in an uncertain environment um, regarding the way that um, students are going to go back, uh, we've certainly seen a significant fall off in uh, tenancies and also in uh, in interest in terms of, of buy to let. Um, but I think the jury's out because I think that presumably those institutions are going to come up with a plan in some way to ensure that those students do some on-campus uh, learning and therefore uh, the accommodation requirements associated with that. So again, I think it's one of those ones where one just has to kind of keep one's finger on the pulse of what is happening in those um, tertiary institutions and university uh, towns to see uh, what's happening there because there may be a, a repricing opportunity uh, if, um, if the messaging is such that the, those universities are gonna go back um, in a diminished way, or again, uh, an opportunity for capital growth if the demand is there. If one looks at what the demand was like in a town uh, the, in Stellenbosch, um, th there was significant um, undersupply for the demand um, projecting almost 10 years uh, into the future. So it, it was a really good and significant long-term opportunity, and it still may be the case. What, sorry, if I could just come in, what we start, are seeing certainly in the universities um, in, in Australia, though, is with um, a lot of online studying happening because it's been forced to happen, there's a high chance that a lot of students will end up studying remotely uh, and, and that might also reduce the demand on, on the accommodation going forward. We just don't know to the extent. Andrew, when you speak about repricing, are you meaning up or down? Well, I, I think it, it could be either way. Um, and, and certainly, you know, if the um, amount of accommodation that's required in a, in a town uh, or, an, or a metro area that is linked to a, a university, if that accommodation significantly diminishes, that is a potentially significant factor around um, increasing the amount of stock that is effectively available for other uses and therefore could reprice it downwards. But the converse could, could also apply um, sure. If one thinks that the universities are going to get back on track uh, to accommodate the increased number of students that almost all universities and tertiary institutions in South Africa are dealing with at the moment, there's a massive um, undersupply, or there was anyway. Thank you. Now, gold is a very popular topic at the moment, and we see all these gold mining companies producing magnificent uh, forecasts of great profits ahead. And we have a question here for Debbie, and it's from David, and he says he understands that you, you can't give specific advice, but part, as part of your all-round advice, do you suggest investing in gold in the form of Krugerrands or the Australian gold nugget, he says, and he says, do you see gold as money and as a safe haven in times of risk and high indebtedness? So just in broad brushstrokes, how does gold fit into the portfolio? 
this isn't the David that I'm married to that's sitting in the lounge right now, who I gave the book to, and so he married the advisor instead of reading No, no, the book it's a different David. It's different different David. David. Okay. All right. So um, The real question from a real David. <laughs> I, I can remember the days of Summit TV, and I took Michael, and he was like a year old, and I, I, somebody asked would I go, and I jumped early on the plane, left him, got there, hadn't slept the night before, which is what happens when you have young babies, and I was sat on Summit TV, and I think it was Lee Benning said, so what do I think about the gold price? And I think my answer is the same as Clem Sunter gave us years ago. It's going to go up. It's going to go down. If I knew when to sell or when to buy, I'd be incredibly wealthy and everybody would ask me to repeat it. And I think you just can't repeat those um, excessive successes. Here we go with the lights. So um, I think gold does not give us a return in terms of cash. You don't get a dividend. Um, it needs to be locked up and kept somewhere safe. And and so, but where it's going to settle, most portfolios that we have have an exposure to gold, um, and it's been a consensus trade. So it's headed potentially, according to Bloomberg, is headed for the largest downturn in seven years after hitting a record high last week. So, you know, I I think that you you just you're just bringing in a huge amount of volatility. And if the, the traders who do it daily will make a choice and, and some of them will, will will lose a ton and some will make some money. Um, but I, I, I can't really see where gold's going to end up. Having said that, it's certainly uh, with, with the current environment that we're living in has had a run um, where that's going to peak. Um, I'll leave that to the chief investment officer that we have and, and to the fund managers. Um, but certainly I, d I don't see emotionally. I know it was nice in the past for the odd granny and grandpa to buy a few Krugerrands and give, you know, one to each of their grandchildren and then keep it in a safe. And then every now and again, they'd worry where the Krugerrands are. So they'd run along and try and remember the safe access code. So I think it's, um, it's a very specific asset class and, uh, I hope I've given you enough um, yes, no advice on it. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but there's perspective. Thanks. So Frank is not interested in gold. He's actually interested in office complexes in the Santon area. And uh, okay. Debbie touched on earlier that you don't invest in residential property. Andrew, do you have a view on uh, commercial property? Do you deal much with that in your organization? Not really. Uh, we we have an affiliate uh, called Swindon uh, Properties who, who basically deal with that. So I'm, I'm really not qualified to really comment on uh, the office environment in Joburg. Okay, no problem. And then Omar wants to know about government bonds for the short term versus fixed deposits. Debbie, do you have a broad brushstrokes view on that? Um, it depends which country um, you're going to buy government bonds in. Um, and at the moment, we've got um, governments printing money. So it's uh, it's hard to see where bonds are going to settle. Uh, but really, just let's just look. Don't don't go for the, the highest return. You're probably landing up with a, a government that might not be able to back its bonds. So certainly most of our income funds would have an exposure to short-term, short-dated bonds. Um, and, and usually a, a mixture of those. So, um, you know, I'm not sure where Omar is going to, is thinking about investing, but most income funds would have a, a series of bonds, some short dated, some long dated, uh, and, and, and a heap of analysts trying to make the right timing call on that. Um, but certainly Thank with you. the government, you know, with the, 
the current uh, money flow that's happening to try and um, sort of massage the economical environment through COVID, uh, you know, we're not seeing too much um, headway as to where to go with bonds at the moment. We've got a few technical problems, so I think we're going to wrap it up and uh, I'll, I'll bring us on to the final questions now. Um, Andrew, you mentioned property in London. What about other jurisdictions? Somebody else has asked you about Switzerland, for example. What is your broad brushstroke sort of guidance for a South African who wants to uh, expand a portfolio so that you have properties in other countries? Yeah, so, so we are um, active in about uh, eight different jurisdictions. Um, each one has their own particular circumstances and uh, characteristics. Um, quite a lot of it is driven by the current golden visa and citizenship and residency considerations. Um, and my advice would be to um, consult essentially with an expert who can give you uh, some direction around the particular needs that the individual has. And those can range in, from everything, including a pure investment play to an investment play that's linked to education in some way in respect of, of children's education, uh, a, a citizenship consideration, an alternative citizenship consideration, uh, a golden visa which, which has as its requirement uh, visa-free travel in the, in the Eurozone and or the UK, uh, a view on the US uh, in terms of the potential for investment to get a green card and, and those kinds of considerations. And so each program has um, its own uh, particular set of circumstances which need to be um, very definitively understood in order to make uh, informed decisions. Um, and certainly in terms of the most popular program that we've been involved in over the last couple of years, that, that's been Portugal, which has provided um, an excellent investment return as well as the Golden Visa program, which allows for uh, immediate residency and then ultimately citizenship. So I'm very happy to talk about those um, in their individual uh, characteristics. But as a general uh, principle, I think one's, one's really got to identify first what the objective is of that offshore consideration. Is it for investment or is it for something else in addition to an investment return? Thank you very much. And then a final question for you, Debbie. This is from Colin. He wants to know, when you invest offshore, is it better to invest in your own name or should you go through an entity? So just in broad brushstrokes, I'm sure it depends again on the specific circumstances, but what are the sort of considerations that you would take into account? So uh, can I just check, is he asking about what structure to use or is he asking where to go? The structure. So a tax efficient structure. So I assume he's maybe thinking about should he invest through a trust? Well, uh, you know, we, 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 I would, our team would probably take two or three meetings to get to a proper solution there. And I mean, Andrew, I'm sure you agree. So, you know, from some investments, you, you actually have to invest in your own name. If you're married, we'd suggest that you invest in both your names, because obviously if there's a, a, a competency, mental competency issue or death, at least the other party can invest. Uh, an offshore trust, some investments don't allow you to invest. South African resident or registered investment. So even though you want to invest offshore, most South Africans would want to have some protection of the regulatory authorities. So they expect the funds to be registered in South Africa. In which, and so I, I think uh, not all the trusts are prepared to go through that process. So I really need to have a hard look at what is the objective behind that. But yes, it's possible. 
Uh, yes, it's expensive, and uh, you have to be mindful of how many people are clipping the ticket, and I would definitely suggest that you take expert advice and maybe get two or three opinions before you do that. Um, we are seeing more and more tragedies occurring where investors have gone through a trust for their own reason, and they've landed up with a long tail of expenses and, and a delay in executing uh, trade buys or sells, uh, be it uh, shares, properties, or bank accounts. So you, my preference, depending on how much money you've got to invest, is that you invest in your own name uh, offshore. Uh, the, you know, it's just an extra layer of distance, but perhaps that's what he's looking for. Just be mindful of the costs. Thank you. Andrew, do you have anything to add to that? Are you finding a lot of people who invest in property offshore do go through a trust or another type of entity? Yeah, I would I would concur with what uh, Debbie says there. We're, we're seeing lots of um, uh, inadvertent errors, um, which are ending up costing uh, clients uh, as a consequence of not um, consulting um, appropriately up front and making sure that the right decisions are made in in pretty much every aspect of of investing offshore i think it's a uh, um it's potentially something that um uh, investors and clients need to take uh, a lot of care over to make sure that all aspects of a potential acquisition in my case in property uh, is done appropriately including the structuring um the the potential downstream tax consequences um can sometimes be really significant and it's really important to get that all set up up front um, as optimally as possible. Great. Well, thank you very much. Anything to add to that before we wrap up? Jackie, I um, I sent you a graph on the S&P 500 versus the S&P 490. Um, are you able to show yeah. that one? Yes, yes, um, we can show that one. Okay. Bear with me. Let just, me just put that yeah. on the screen. There we go. Can you see it? Yeah. So where are you... I'm just trying to alert viewers to the fact that there are only three stocks that are making up more than 16% of the S&P 500 index and over a third of the NASDAQ 100. So, you know, Apple, Amazon and Microsoft are now valued at $5 trillion. That's larger than this economy of Germany and nearly the size of the Japanese economy. So the caution I would add is, you know, when one's going on – bulk advice and headline advice, be very, very mindful and start understanding what's behind these returns and these headlines. And just take take a step back, um, take advice. You, you know, there are folk that will give you advice so you can understand, you know, you can say, wow, but, you know, to have them so separated from their free cash flow at more than any time than an outright bear market. So just just a word of caution. They've seen it on Biz News. We don't know where, where it's going to go. Um, I think those stocks have been the beneficiaries of COVID. We're all ordering online. Uh, we're all conversing. You know, Zoom was worth very little. Now it's worth a huge amount of money. Uh, and I think we just got to be very mindful of short termism and, and uh, jumping in because of, you know, would you get into a minibus taxi and he's only looking at his rearview mirror? Hopefully mm. not. So we we've got a number of those stocks. Forward. We've got a number of those stocks in the Biz News share portfolio. So my colleague Alec Hogg will be discussing the share portfolio again later on this week in one of his webinars. So they're very interesting stocks that you've picked out there. Thanks, Debbie. And thank you very much, you. Andrew, for joining us today. And if anybody has any questions or feedback or further questions, please do drop us a line. It's Jackie at biznews.com. Thank you. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you, Jackie. Bye.
Bye.